0: Welcome to this episode of Podcast. I'm Laura Axtell, your host, and I hope that you benefit from the conversation with our guest today, Carrie Drake Saunderson, as much as I did. We are continuing our discussion about becoming more stress resilient and improving the quality of life for teachers, parents, and students that has been the topic of a four part webinar series sponsored by Reading Horizons. To view the recording of Carrie's webinar or to register for the upcoming webinars that will focus on reducing student stress, to increase reading performance, visit ReadingHorizons.com forward slash SEL. PodCast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, a foundational reading program based on the science of reading that can be delivered in person, virtually, and in a blended learning model with instructional software for students in kindergarten through 12th grade and adults. Visit ReadingHorizons.com to learn more. Joining me on this episode is Carrie drake Saunderson. Who has a master's degree and 13 years of experience teaching English language learners in a variety of settings and then developing literacy curriculum and training for educators. Carrie also has a certificate in applied positive psychology and has created a company wellness program called Thrive and a positive psychology curriculum for schools. So Carrie, thanks so much for joining us on Podcast. Thank you Laura. So good to be here. In your webinar, we're going to jump right into a study that you referenced from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, and they had interviewed 5,000 teachers. Could you talk a little bit about that study?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it was the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence combined with their colleagues at the Collaborative for Social, Emotional, and Academic Learning. And essentially, they sent out a survey just to 5,000 teachers saying, describing your own words, what are the five emotions that you experience on a daily basis right now? And this was right at the beginning of the pandemic last year. And the five words that showed up most frequently amongst all 5,000 that they interviewed were anxious, fearful, worried, overwhelmed, and sad. And they said that by far anxious was the number one emotion represented.
0: And that's probably no surprise, right? Yeah, exactly. When you think
1: about, you know, the epitome of uncertainty and anxiety and not knowing what to expect. So no surprise there. What was interesting, as I was reading the study, is that they had done a similar interview just a few years ago in 2017, 5,000 teachers again, and had very similar words, frustrated, overwhelmed, stressed, tired. So the conclusion that they made is, you know, America's teachers are burning out. They're overwhelmed. They're stressed. This is not new. This has been going on for a long time. Now is the time to address their social, emotional needs. And a lot of them don't have training in that and express frustration and just not knowing where to go or what to do.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because we talk a lot about balance in education, you know, helping our kids balance, you know, sports and schoolwork and getting enough sleep and things like that. But we don't really ever I've never heard of a class in undergrad for uh, teachers, pre-service teachers that really focuses on going into quite a stressful occupation and being able to create balance. Have you? No. And and actually it's interesting that you
1: mentioned that it wasn't until I was teaching full time at a university and I could take classes on anything. That's when I started taking classes like that in positive psychology and wellness. And, and I had the same thought this, this needs to be a requirement for all teachers. They need this. This
0: is just the foundation of of wellness. We do talk a lot about balance. But as the study mentioned, and as we know, teaching has always been stressful for a large population of educators. And that's such a desired goal, but it's really hard to achieve. And why do you think that's so true? Or does the research show why that may be so true for teachers specifically?
1: Well, and when you think about teachers compared to other careers, they have to be generalized more than some others. Some are more, you know, niche or specialized. Teachers are, you know, the the counselors, they're the the physical education leaders, they're the academic leaders. They are, you know, the curriculum director, they are everything. Um, So they're wearing a lot of different hats. So it makes total sense that the balance would be something that they would ever be seeking after and never achieving. So perhaps it's, you know, our perception of living a balanced life that we need to shift just a little that we can't really expect that. But for teachers themselves, you know, the study mentioned some of the reasons that they themselves listed for that stress and burnout, some of the things that they're balancing before the pandemic, you know, lack of strong leadership a negative climate they had increased job demands like testing, addressing challenging student behaviors, not feeling like they had autonomy or decision making power. Those are the kind of things that were showing up or no formal SEL training after the pandemic hit and they had to pivot their their positions, you know, so rapidly to being online educators. Then they were balancing the expectations of becoming distance learning experts almost overnight and, you know, trying to continue to have un- uninterrupted learning for their students without time for themselves to be able to amply prepare and also taking care of their own families. You know, it's not like they they don't live in a bubble, even though sometimes as young children, we think our teachers live at the school. They actually don't. They have homes and lives. And so then working from home, a lot of them, then all those boundaries are hazed and, you know, they're, they're taking care of their children's needs, also being their learning assistant, as well as trying to take on their students' needs and expectations from their district leaders and whatnot. So it's no, no surprise that they, the balancing act
0: is tricky for, for that role, and that can really take a toll. Well, and I was thinking even the small little stressors. For example, most teachers have to be at school quite early in the morning. And if you get stuck in traffic at most jobs and you get to work five minutes late, it won't matter. But when you're a teacher, you've got a class waiting on you you often don't get a chance to go to the bathroom or to have lunch. And often when you should be leaving at the end of the day, you're staying after or you're taking work home with you. And over time, just those maybe what may be small stressors, couldn't they just become so overwhelming that that's where a lot of those teachers are, you know, identifying a lot of those words like anxiety and and even sad, sadness.
1: Absolutely. I can remember, you know, as soon as I left school and went home, I, I felt like I was never really off. My mind was always on thinking of the next day's lessons and what to prepare. And so in a way they're depleted of energy, even mentally. And so really learning how to, to recharge and to kind of rejuvenate themselves with, Is critical.
0: And and as you were describing stress in the webinar, you said something that I found really interesting. You said stress is anything in the environment that causes the need to adapt. Mm -hmm. And that really struck me because it's just lets us know that when things are predictable, I really don't have to make a change to anything. And so there's less stress because I know what to do, I know what to expect. Mm -hmm. But if I have to do something different, even a small thing, then that requires an adaptation. And then that leads to stress. Is that true?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think about my my friend who I mentioned in the webinar, who she's you know been a math teacher for an online math teacher for 18 years. The pandemic hits and they shut everything down. And even though you would think that the online teacher is the most apt, it was a change in, in her her current reality expectations. Even the admin didn't know what to do. So, you know, they, they had to create much more lesson content. You know, her colleagues who weren't as tech savvy were went relying on her a lot. And she just said it was the hardest time in, in her life. She just felt so stressed out. And then, you know, her own concerns on top of that. So, again, she could go for 18 years teaching a class online, you know, doing her one live session and plugging in the curriculum online. And then, you know, all of a sudden everything is turned on its head and she needed to adapt. So that stress. A misconception maybe about stress is that this, this is only negative things. It could be anything that causes you to need to adapt, maybe a new title or a new position or even a new student.
0: Do you think that one of the issues might have been that when we went to remote or hybrid learning, that really everybody was kind of thinking, we're just going to do what we were doing before, but we're just going to do it online, or we're just going to send the work home or something like that, as opposed to looking at this as maybe the opportunity to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed more stressful because we were trying to replicate something that really couldn't be replicated. Yeah.
1: As you know, in those that have been teaching online, sitting in front of a computer with your class is very different than the face-to-face interactive multi-sensory kind of interaction and so to expect that our brains could keep up one just the emotional energy draining of of facing that crisis at the time and the wonder around it that setting is totally new and our brains just aren't equipped to pay attention for that long and and do those things so trying to you know do the exact same thing online and then seeing this actually isn't working would probably have been like the first red flag then would trigger a string of other adaptations that needed to be made
0: So Dr. Will talked about in the first webinar in the series, and then you mentioned this as well, is that predictability is one way to relieve stress. So could you talk more about the benefits of having predictable routines and and then what are some ways to reduce stress by automating activities?
1: Well, let me first start with asking you a question about reading. Why is it beneficial for students to learn to decode words to automaticity? That would be my first question.
0: Um, Because they need to be able to decode accurately and automatically to build fluency and to hold on to the information as they're reading for comprehension. Exactly.
1: The reason we're teaching decoding, we want them to be able to see the word and know how to pronounce it instantly without giving any extra energy because that space in our prefrontal cortex is limited, right? Our brain can only think about one problem at a time. So anything that it can automate, it will. It will offload to the subconscious mind so that we can activate more space and more energy to be able to focus on more important things so just like that's the importance of teaching decoding and reading it's the same with with any adaptation or any routine the brain loves habituation because that conscious mind is the bottleneck that's where things kind of get backed up we can only pay attention to one problem at a time so we're we're always working to preserve that conscious mind the more things that can be predictable and automatic, the more space we're going to have to be able to deal with, cope with this, the stressors that we're not expecting or, or balance or adapt. I told you in, in the webinar that I just finished the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. If you haven't read that yet, I highly recommend it. And he talks about that, you know, that even with simple daily habits, like without good financial habits, we'll always be struggling. Without good health habits, you always be short on energy. Without good learning habits, you always feel like you're behind the curve. Like if we're always forced to make decisions about simple daily occurrences, then we're never going to feel like we're on our on our game. And we're always going to feel kind of under that pressure and stress. So it's really by making the fundamentals. If we can create routine and automaticity around them, that's when then we can have more space to handle the uncertainty or the unforeseen.
0: So I can think of a good example as a teacher. One of the things that everyone knows is in the morning when you're getting ready is not the time to be looking for the things you need to be taking with you. And so what I just got into the routine of doing is spending five minutes the evening before whatever and making sure that everything I was going to take was in the bag by the door and or even in the car sometimes and so that I wouldn't have to spend any additional time or mental energy trying to find things. And and that really did reduce my stress. I, I actually think I slept better even because I wasn't worried about, oh, what do I need to take? What do I need to do? And it actually saved a lot of time because I just got into that routine. I didn't even really think about it anymore. It was always just, is everything ready to go for tomorrow? It, is that what you mean, kind of? That's exactly what I mean. And so instead of what's for dinner
1: or like, where are my keys? Those are just little things that we could really take care of and have a, have a system in place. You followed the same routine every night before you went to bed to get yourself ready for work the next day. That's exactly it. So now there's no extra energy, no extra stressor there around things that don't need to be causing stress. So if everything in your life is in total disarray or chaos or not in routine, it's going to make sense that then the big things, there's no space to handle those and just leads to complete breakdown or or burnout.
0: We're going to take a short break. We'll be back soon with more of our conversation with Carrie. PodCast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers and English language learners of all ages. This season, Reading Horizons is sharing what educators and parents have to say about how the program is making a difference with students. Patty in Utah explains how Reading Horizons has become a whole school initiative to improve reading across the grade levels.
2: I spent a decade as a sixth grade teacher and I had no idea how to help a young man who was on a second grade reading level. I did not know what to do with him. Had I been trained in Reading Horizons I would have been so much more better prepared to help this student. I look back and think, oh, what I didn't know. The brain science about reading now tells us so much more, informs our decisions and our curriculum now so much more thoroughly that we know that getting solid phonics instruction is what those kids need. And that is what Reading Horizons has provided. It's changed the way we have taught reading in our schools. So I am more than pleased that I came across Reading Horizons. It's been my go-to. More and more people are adopting it, and it's becoming a whole school plan. So thank you, Reading Horizons. For
0: more information, visit readinghorizons.com. So I was really fascinated by your discussion of the three pillars of well-being on the webinar. Could you explain them and why they are important? Absolutely.
1: So I mentioned in the webinar, it was my first
0: formal positive psychology
1: class that I'd ever taken. I had read books before. And positive psychology is essentially, for those that aren't familiar with that term, the psychology of those who thrive. So instead of studying what makes people sick, this is studying what actually makes people well and helps them to thrive and be happy. He said the very first day of class, my health psychologist professor, he said, I can teach you a lot of things, but nothing that I teach you will have any room to sink in unless your foundation is in place. And there are three pillars of well-being, which are actually three lines of defense for for coping with stress. This is not rocket science. We've all heard these, (laughs) but he made me think about it in a different way. And he said, the first one is movement or exercise. This is our number one defense against stress. Some people, you know, when you hear the word exercise, That might instantly put up a roadblock to some people. You know, when we think of exercise, we think of, you know, owning a gym membership, getting out the door, kind of even causes stress to some to think about that. So exercise, I would rather replace that term with with movement. So let's talk about just moving our bodies. So my professor was talking about how daily movement is what actually promotes the branch growth in your neurons, in your brain cells more than anything else. So this is our number one defense against stress. I remember him saying you can literally grow a new brain if your movement or your exercise is restorative in nature. so if you're doing things to restore yourself. So really important that movement piece and we'll talk more in a little bit about you know what that looks like in specifics. Uh, the second pillar in which is our number two defense against stress. So the, the best thing we can do number one is move our bodies. Number two, is sleep. When we rest and we restore our brains, they can function and cope better. If we don't sleep, our brains do not function at the way that they should or could. Um, There was a study done by AAA actually that found that drivers who miss two or three hours of sleep a day, they more than quadruple their risk of getting into a car crash compared to other drivers who slept for seven hours or more. So there's definitely something to our brain's ability to function process and cope. In this case, we're talking about stress. So that sleep is critical to to being able to function that way. Uh, Not only that, it's also just healthier for even our skin. If you sleep less, your skin ages faster because it can't restore itself. Uh, So it's important for a lot of areas. But we're we're talking about the brain benefit here of, of sleep. That's our second line of defense. The third line of defense that we can take is nutrition. Again, this is not about dieting or anything like that. This is about which foods can I put in my body that will help produce more neurotransmitters. So neurotransmitters are created in the nerves. Those are the chemicals in our brains that help us to feel good or positive emotions or resiliency. They are made through, you know, the nutrients that are there. If there's if there's nothing there, then we're then we're actually depleting those those cells. So depending on what we eat is mood management. So that's literally brain food, the, the food that we put in. Serotonin is made inside the nerve and pumped out. Serotonin is neurotransmitter associated with less depression. So you think about stress and the, how the depression might follow. Um, that serotonin is made from nutrients from the food that we eat. So eating whole foods is, is really important there. Um, there are also foods that deplete The neurotransmitters, such as processed, or I remember him mentioning specifically salty potato chips, which tastes delicious, but maybe they're not giving us the nutrient quality that we need to be able to dial up our brain cells and, and produce them. So, those are basically the foundations to happiness. And we can't really apply anything else that we have to talk about until our foundation is really in place. That's the core. He mentioned that it doesn't have to be intense changes, like these can be small. I call them 1% changes after reading James Clear's book, the power of 1% change. This could be alternate routes to, to health and wellness. So it doesn't have to be huge, major things. And in fact, he encouraged us while taking this class, look for just four or five small changes you can make in each of these areas. And that will make a huge difference down the road.
0: So like with movement, what are some examples of, um, I think you called them in the webinar, two minute changes.
1: Yeah, so two minute changes. James Clear in his Atomic Habits book also talks about if a habit can't be done in two minutes, then it's probably not going to ever become a real habit for you. Like it's not going to stick if it takes longer than that. In order for something to become habituated, it has to be simple and easy to access. So we want to implement changes that can take two minutes or less. So some two minute changes that maybe might work for movement, you can call it exercise if you want, but movement, just just move your body. It could mean getting a standing desk so that you're standing more than sitting throughout the day. Even just standing up gets more oxygen into your into your blood and into your brain. Hey, I remember it's what stood out to me. He said only 3% of adults actually participate in the traditional exercise throughout their life that we think of like three days a week actually working out at the gym, that is very uncommon throughout the whole lifespan. So we need to find alternate routes. So some more of those alternate routes or those two-minute changes for movement might also be, can you ride your bike to work or to a store? Or can you park further away in the parking lot? Can you take the stairs instead of the elevator? I know in our family, we have an ongoing document called our family culture, the Saunderson Family Culture List, one of the statements I remember that got put on there early was "Saundersons take the stairs that and so it became part of our identity this is just who we are this is what we do or there was a time that you know if I went out to eat at a restaurant I set a little goal that before I could get back in my car I just had to do one loop around the restaurant to walk back to my car (laughs) or can you walk to your mailbox instead of you know stopping by in your car as you're coming home from work just Extra little ways throughout the day to get more movement. Our aim is only really 20 minutes of movement throughout your day, and it doesn't have to be consecutive. That can be, you know, a couple minutes here and there. That's the beautiful thing about brain cell growth and dialing up that that coping center in our brain. So just spreading out that movement in tiny little steps is is huge. And then, what about for sleep? For sleep, there is a lot of of sleep research and you know, that talks about if we can get to bed before midnight, every hour of sleep before midnight is worth two hours after, you know, some things that you could control. Maybe you can control your bedtime or your wind down routine. You know, some people have a hard time falling asleep and they know that they credit or have linked some of that to increased screen time, blue light time. So kind of having a wind down where we unplug and maybe don't have screens in your bedroom, or can you practice deep breathing before you fall asleep to help calm your mind, maybe put on white noise. That's a new addition I've recently uh, incorporated after having a baby is a white noise machine in my room. And I found
0: it helps me sleep so much better. On the webinar, you mentioned even changing your pillow. And I thought that was so true, because I've come to realize how much better I sleep when I have a certain type of pillow. It's like that makes a huge difference to sleep. Absolutely. And it's worth the investment.
1: You know, you spend a lot of time in your bed. So your mattress, your pillow, find, find what works for you so that you can sleep restoratively and restfully. Just knowing the importance of having a well-rested brain on your ability to handle the stressors that come up in your job and in your life. And what about with nutrition? Yeah, nutrition hacks. So, what are some two-minute habits for nutrition? And again, we're just looking for small changes—four or five slight changes you could make. Now, it could be you eat white bread, maybe switching to whole grain or whole wheat. That would give you some more nutrients for the brain to pull on. Drinking more water. I have a friend who was just telling me about all the health problems that she was having, and it was linked to not having enough water. Her pain and her hard recovery. So aiming for 50% of your body weight in water, if that seems like an unrealistic challenge, taking, you know, just fitting it into your routine. I'm going to finish one water bottle after work when, you know, by the time I have dinner or something like that, just ways to build it in.
0: Or, or just reducing um, sodas, soft drinks. Absolutely. In fact, we could have, we could have a whole discussion on, on the nutrition
1: aspect, but just the sodium and soft drinks and how much water it takes to actually dilute that out of your system and, and the sugar in them. So, yeah, those would be a perfect example of, of things to reduce in order to create more, the, the nutrient-rich environment for your brain cells to, to create those neurotransmitters. Vitamins, you know, that's a simple one, just popping a vitamin. For me, I have to have that, it has to be built in, Like uh, it's called habit stacking and atomic habits when I eat my breakfast, I'm going to take my vitamins. So it's when you're already doing something else, it's already a habit. You try to inc- include the new habit. So that could be one, five servings of fruits and vegetables. The average American really only eats two a day of fruits and vegetables. just adding more whole foods into your diet is going to create more nutrients for you. Like you mentioned, cutting back on soda, cutting back on sugar, ice cream, the best hack of all is just don't have it in your house. If you can't resist it, if the cue isn't there, you won't eat it. So that's, although the break rooms at school are probably the the no-go zone for for this kind of thing as far as reducing treats.
0: Something else that Will mentioned in his um, webinar about this topic is, but if you give up something, it's really helpful to have something to replace it with. So, you know, if you really are craving something crunchy like potato chips to have nuts or something else that could substitute, is that what you're saying? Yeah. In fact, I recently, I had the the restart at the beginning of the year and trying to cut
1: sweets Well, I still have kind of the sweet cravings. So I, I found pomegranates pomegranate seeds to be like my candy, so I could replace that with actually something that has a lot of vitamin C and, you know, re- make it something more worthwhile. I remember my teacher even talking about, you know, if you're going to have a piece of pie, pick the, the apple pie over the chocolate pudding pie, because at least the apple pie has apples in it. Apples have fiber. And, you know, that's something a little healthier that will give you some more nutrients for your brain.
0: So lots of little things, just to, if you stop and think about them, that would probably be pretty easy. Yep,
1: exactly. And that's part of it. Like Will was talking about that. Create your routine. So what is your tiny habits, nutrition nutritional routine? What are you going to incorporate in? And that could just mean having an apple there to grab, you know, something easy.
0: Or when you go to the grocery store, always having at least a couple of things that you're really looking forward to having at your house when you, those cravings strike. Oh, absolutely. And you bring up a good point, too.
1: Habit, if we want habits to stick, it has to be enjoyable. So we can't think of this as something tedious or hard. It needs to be something you're looking forward to, like you mentioned. So make it something you like and, and yet something that will give you benefits
0: Another topic that you brought up that I thought was so fascinating and actually kind of connects to what we've been talking about is explanatory style. So if I feel like I'm giving something up, that sounds so much different than, you know, I'm replacing something that's better for me or something like that. So could you talk a little bit about that and how it applies to educators and parents, especially in the midst of a pandemic?
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a good example. So explanatory style is essentially the way that we describe the events in our lives it's the story that we're telling ourselves now typically they they've identified two explanatory style types the pessimistic explanatory style and the optimistic explanatory style now this is a little different than the being a pessimist or an optimist those are kind of character traits this style is just simply a way of seeing things you're not labeling yourself as you know positive or negative or pessimistic or optimistic, but it's like you said, are we seeing this in a positive kind of enhancing light, or are we seeing this in a kind of draining <laughs> discouraging kind of
0: like, for example, you know, we all know lots of teachers, my sister was a kindergarten teacher, um, when COVID struck, and kindergarten teachers are so hands on. And so she was expected to start using all these virtual resources and things like that. And so her initial explanatory style was, Oh, my gosh, I don't know how to use zoom. I'm not tech savvy, right. But within a week and a half or two, Basically, because she was forced to, she had learned not only how to use Zoom, but also she was making these cool little videos for her kids and things like that. And so her then explanatory style became, wow, I've learned how to use all these digital tools. And these are things that can help me be more creative as a teacher that I didn't really even think about before.
1: Absolutely. And that's kind of the unseen advantage of stress that, you know, when we have to adapt, often we think we're not up for the challenge, but then what we discover is a pleasant surprise. We're actually wired exactly for that. And we come out stronger. that That's resilience to a T there, you know, learning from the challenge or the stressor. That was a really great example. My daughter's, kindergarten teacher to do something very similar. You know, I was really impressed with how she took this play-based classroom and then all of a sudden had to transfer it online. And she was doing story time and had activities where, you know, they had to print out a picture of her and take her places. So take Miss Lawson to the park or take her to <laughs> buy a tree or show show your class what you did with Miss Lawson today, you know, just getting really creative. And it turned into this really positive thing. So our first instinct might be, you know, oh, I'm not, I'm not cut out for this. This isn't good. I'm not tech savvy, but then I like that, that we can, it shows your sister's example was perfect at any time. We can actually reframe that to, oh, wow, I actually am I can learn new things and I can do hard things. And it turns out to be for, for my better.
0: And honestly, isn't it often the case that we're kind of something forces us out of our comfort zone to try new things. And initially we don't think we're up for the challenge and we probably would never do them on our own. But when we were required to, or when we really need to, for some reason, we come to realize, wow, I can do this. And And that actually gives you confidence going forward. So
1: having some of those experiences in your life repertoire, you know, now, the next time you're faced with a hard challenge or an unexpected challenge, you can think, oh, well, I remember when the pandemic hit and school shut down and I had to learn to be, you know, Zoom savvy overnight and, and be tech savvy. And I was able to do it. So then it gives you confidence also going forward. So that that leads into that explanatory style. They also identify that with pessimistic explanatory style. Usually the thought process is this is personal, permanent and pervasive, but with an optimistic explanatory style is this is temporary and impermanent and not personal. Like it, it is situational. Um, and those that adopt that kind of an attitude are much more resilient and much more likely to learn from the, the stressor, just like you were mentioning with your, your sister and the other examples. I also think about the study I mentioned about the luck factor, how, you know, the people who saw themselves as lucky were actually the ones that found the opportunity in it. And yet the ones who perceived themselves as unlucky were the ones that actually didn't benefit from the opportunity, even though it was there right in front of their eyes. So, Our perception and the way we're explaining life, you know, do I expect good things to happen to me or do I expect bad things to happen to me? Do I expect that I am capable to handle these new situations that I'm not trained in or do I expect that I'm going to fail? It's often a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: And and that leads perfectly to the next question, which is, um, Will talked a lot about how stress impacts health, the physical body, but you talked about how stress perception impacts actual health. Could you talk about that cuz that's so different. Just our perception of what we see as stress.
1: Absolutely. And I think I I started with a little story of my nieces who were we were at a restaurant and the younger niece broke her crayon in half while she was coloring and my older niece was there to kind of give her support when the crayon broke, my younger niece started crying instantly. She she interpreted that as something really negative that, you know, a broken crayon is bad. And my older niece said, Hey, look, now you have two crayons. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That was a, a, a perception change. Now in their research, what they found and and probably one of the most fascinating Ted talks that I've seen on this topic is by Dr. Kelly McGonigal, which if you watch the webinar, you you heard me referencing some of her stuff. And she, you know, they did, they did a study that she found that kind of unraveled her message as a health psychologist was always stress is bad. It should be avoided at all costs. But what they found in this particular study is they asked participants to, to rate how stressful their life had been in the last year. They also asked them, do you believe that stress is bad for you? Those are the two questions. Then they just let life go on and they just monitored public death records to see who actually died. What they found was, you know, the, the, the people who had a lot of stress and also believed that stress was bad for you had a 43% higher chance of, of, of dying in that over that eight year period. And the interesting part is those that still had high stress, but didn't perceive stress as negative, had a much lower chance. In fact. They had the lowest of everyone in the study risk of of dying, the lowest mortality rate. So even those that had low
0: stress, but yet still thought stress was bad for you. So wait, wait, let me get that right. So the people that that rated their lives as the most stressful, but didn't consider stress to be a negative thing actually had the lowest rates of death.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the ones that had just as much stress (laughs) as the first group, but they didn't see stress as negative they were the ones that had the, the lowest rate of dying in the study out of everyone. Yeah. it's was a pretty fascinating connection. The conclusion then was okay. So it's not actually stress that's causing these
0: deaths. It's the perception, the belief that stress is bad for your health. So the big question is how do we get better at stress <laughs> or dealing
1: with stress or thinking about stress? Okay. So here's, here's a perfect example. So speaking of stress and unpredictability, my son just woke up from his nap and he's now downstairs with me while we're doing this interview. So we might hear him in the background and <laughs> get to enjoy those baby noises. But that's a perfect example of something I'm not expecting. Or able to control. Exactly. And and then I need to adapt now on the, on the fly. So how and what is my explanatory style about that? Am I capable of doing that? Is this something that's permanent, pervasive and personal or is it just temporary and? And we will get past this and no one will even remember that my son was in the background. So how do we get better at stress? You know, I think about that when something happens in my life, an activating event, it's not so much the event itself that causes the outcome. It's my belief about that event. And so to focus on my beliefs, what is the story I'm telling myself and kind of shifting that is going to put me in in a more positive mindset to be able to handle that better. If we were to spell stressed backwards, it spells desserts. And so I talked about different strategies um, being the desserts to undo our stress. So my first line of defense, when I feel that, you know, the stress response increasing in my body is that deep breathing. So taking a big, deep, in, deep breath in through my nose, into my belly and you know, filling it with air and then exhaling. That right there is one of the fastest ways to activate that parasympathetic response. So getting us out of fight or flight, just out of the instant reaction and into a calm recovery state. Um, So that's my first line of defense always.
0: Well, last question. Uh, You mentioned adrenaline and some of the benefits of it. So is stress ever a good thing or can we use it to our advantage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: So is stress ever a good thing? In the research, there's something called the paradox of stress, which is you know, we think that the fast heartbeat and my perspiring and the stomachache and kind of those physiological responses are actually negative when really that that's our body preparing us to, to face this challenge. And then they found, and this is one of the most fascinating things they found in the research that those that report high worry and high stress are also linked to feeling the most satisfied And having purpose and meaning to their lives and and careers as well. And so, you know, even though it feels like this should be avoided, if we were to take that away, take the stressor away, then we're also taking away a meaningful and purposeful life um, and opportunities to grow. You know, I think about a tree, a tree that doesn't experience any wind. They don't grow strong roots. So then if a really big windstorm comes, it just knocks the tree completely over but a tree that has experienced some wind, that sends a trigger to the root system to grow stronger roots. And so it's the same with us. So is stress ever a good thing? My question then would be, is it ever not a good thing? So those that see stress as helpful, have better physical and emotional side effects. Those that view stress as hurtful, it's, that is what it becomes for them. It's all about how we perceive it.
0: What a great way to end. That is awesome. So uh, we're looking forward to the upcoming webinars where we're going to get a chance to talk about how this really looks from the student point of view and some things that we can do to help our students with stress.
1: Well, tune in definitely for the next uh, webinar. (laughs) I'll be sharing kind of my experience in tapping into this research that, you know, the affective filter for students is raised so high, meaning they have so many emotional things going on. And then we're asking them to do these hard tasks, you know, these academic tasks, like maybe learn a new language or a new subject or take these tests. But really, it's actually when they are primed with positivity and mindset shift that that's when they actually succeed and thrive. And so there are research-based things that we can do in the classroom to kind of lower that affective filter and increase their confidence and and their neurotransmitter production so that they can dial up the learning centers and be more successful.
0: Well, we'll look forward to that. So thank you so much to you and your son. Yeah, thank you for your patience. (laughs) (laughs) As we close, a reminder that you can register to watch all of the webinars on social and emotional learning at readinghorizons.com forward slash SEL. On our next episode, we'll focus on reducing stress and building stress resilience for students. We hope you'll join us. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. For more information, visit readinghorizons.com.